Well, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. And we're going to continue our look into the last hours of Jesus' life. Uh, we've already spent two weeks on this single chapter, and we're going to wrap it up before we move to chapters 20 and 21, which uh, take us into the resurrection and, of course, the ascension of Christ. Once again, John is going to get the award for brevity. He's the king of brevity. As we'll see, he's going to take the death of Jesus, and particularly the burial of Jesus, and deal with it in basically 13 verses. Uh, he, he once again doesn't give us a lot of information. And as has been the case all along, his goal seems to be to keep the focus on Jesus. He's not uh, getting obscured by or distracted by a lot of details. He's, he's just simply giving us the gist of what happened. And we're going to go deeper. We're going to dig deeper. One of the things I love about studying the scriptures is that there are so many incredible links. Uh, you know, if, if you're the kind of guy that gets bored with scripture easily, then you're really not studying scripture because scripture is alive. It's breathing. It is, it's so rich. You, you never can fully plumb its depths. And you're going to see that as we, as we get into this chapter today and as it takes us to other places in the scriptures and, and reveals to us what's really going on behind the scenes. So as we did last week, I want to read this passage, and then we're going to go in and just kind of unpack it together. So let's start in verse 31. It says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that, that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Of course, this is referring to Jesus and the two thieves on either side of him. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, the thief, and of the other who had been crucified with him, Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. This is John, once again speaking in the third person, revealing that he saw all these things take place. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no, no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, one of the things I want us to notice right away is this term at the very end of this chapter, the Jewish day of preparation. It, it actually brackets the verses we just read because in verse 31, we see the same thing. Since it was the day of preparation. So, so what are we talking about? What is John telling us? He's, he's parenthetically put brackets on these verses and he starts it with the day of preparation, and he ends with the day of preparation. But what's he talking about? Well, he's referring to Friday. 
Friday is the day that comes before the Sabbath. The, the, the Jews didn't typically use uh, day designations or names of days like we do. Uh, everything was built around the Sabbath, and so they used numbers, the fifth day, the sixth day, the seventh day. So when he's referring to the day of preparation, he's talking about Friday. Now, everything we've talked about over the last few weeks has, has taken place on Friday. And so we're still in Friday. He's crucified on Friday, and we're nearing the end of that day, sundown. And sundown, when the sun finally set, began the next day. When the sun began to uh, come up the next day, it would be the new day of the, of the week. So this is Friday. It's probably somewhere around 5 o'clock, between 5 and 6 o'clock uh, in, the, in the evening when Jesus dies. And so it's called the day of preparation because every Friday was a day of preparation. Preparation for the Sabbath. The Sabbath came every week at the same time, at the same day of the week. And so on Fridays, they would prepare for the Sabbath. Now, what's significant about this and what we have to understand is this goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. The Sabbath had been something God had set in place long before the law was given. And that's going to become important as we dig into this passage. Let's go back to chapter 31 of Exodus. And this is verses 13 through 16. It says, tell the people of Israel, this is God speaking, be careful to keep my Sabbath day for the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. It is given so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy, sets you apart. That's really what the word means. You must keep the Sabbath day, for it is a holy day for you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Anyone who works on that day will be cut off from the community. Then it goes on and says, You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day must be a Sabbath day of complete rest, a holy day dedicated to the Lord. Anyone who works on the Sabbath must be put to death. The people of Israel must keep the Sabbath day by observing it from generation to generation. This is a covenant obligation for all time. So here we are all the way back in the Exodus. And God is telling his people that I have set aside this day, the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. It will be a day of rest. You're not to work on that day. It's a day of cessation from work. And that's really important. It's complete rest for the people of God. So what happens? Well, over the centuries, the Jews begin to expand on this idea of the Sabbath. And they begin to come up with additional rules to garner or, or to prohibit certain actions on the Sabbath. You know, we have a way of taking what God gives us and we complicate it. We, we tend to mess things up. And this is exactly what they did. So here's all the prohibitions that were tied to just bread. Okay, you got to keep with me. There, there's 39 different categories of prohibitions that the rabbis came up with. And these just have to do with the making of bread. So you couldn't plant on the Sabbath. You couldn't plow on the Sabbath, reap, gather. You couldn't thresh or winnow the grain. You couldn't grind, you couldn't knead, and you most certainly couldn't bake on the Sabbath. It was prohibited. And if you did it, you were worthy of death. Now, none of these go back to Exodus chapter 31 that we just read. These were all laws that men came up with and put on top of the requirements of God Almighty. 
And they're part of, of, of a, a category of 39 prohibitions that called the Melcha. And it's, it's a, again, a rabbinical tradition. It was, they were rules thought up by men, but they held the people under this heavy, heavy burden that you couldn't do any of these things. 39 different categories of Sabbath laws that the rabbis had come up with. But you have to remember what we read in chapter 31 of Exodus is there was really only one law to begin with. God said, don't work on the Sabbath. Um, you can work six days out of the week and you can use that last day of the week to prepare for the seventh day of the week. Just don't work on the Sabbath. He didn't give them a whole litany of 39 rules or categories of rules. He just simply said, don't work. So where's this all going? Well, again, in Exodus chapter 16, earlier on, God had told the people that I'm going to provide for you. Now, the, the context for this is that the people began to grumble because they were out of food. And if you know anything about the history of the Israelites during the Exodus, is they grumbled a lot. It was a problem they had. And they would always go to Moses and they would complain about the lack of water, the lack of food. You know, and they would always have this selective memory that things were better when we were back in Egypt. And so in this case, they had been grumbling about the lack of food. So here's what God says. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. Here's the test. Whether they will walk in my law or not. What was the law? Don't work on the Sabbath. On the sixth day, that's the Friday, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So what's going on here? God is going to provide them with manna, bread from heaven. And he tells them that you're going to gather it six days out of the week and you'll always have enough to eat. On the sixth day, you're going to gather twice as much so that you don't have to gather on the Sabbath. He's protecting their rest. He's basically providing them with food and double the amount they need on Friday for Saturday, the Sabbath. So this should sound familiar to every one of us because it, it, it's something Jesus himself talked about. And it's back in John chapter 6. And this is going to ring a bell with you as soon as we read it. He says to them, then what, they say to him, what sign do you do? These are the Jewish people who are basically saying, show us a sign. These people are the ones that he had fed just the day before from just a few loaves and fishes. He fed well over 10,000 people. And they come the next day and they're looking for another meal, another handout. And so they say, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Here they are helping Jesus out. Hey, we have an idea. Here's what we'd like to see you do. Feed us again. You fed us yesterday. Do it again today. And so they use the manna story as a prompt. Hey, Jesus, remember what Moses did why don't you do the same thing for us this morning? Because we're kind of hungry again. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It literally rained bread from heaven. They would go out in the morning. It would be laying there on the ground and they would pick it up and collect it and eat it. See, these people had come to Jesus seeking physical bread. 
They, they had been fed before, miraculously. And it says that none of them went away hungry. They come back the next day. Now they are hungry, and they're looking for more of the same, more physical bread. But see, Jesus offers them something greater, something more, something far more substantial than just more bread. Here's what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you, the people standing in front of him, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, referring to himself, and gives life to the world. So Jesus takes the story of the Exodus, and particularly the story related to the manna, and he applies it to himself. He, he modernizes it. He brings it forward and he says, that really was a picture, a foreshadowing of what I have come to do. I am the one who has come down from heaven. I am the bread from heaven. And I offer something far greater than what that bread offered. Because those people eventually died. But those who consume the bread from heaven, Jesus, who take in Jesus, will have life. And he goes on and talks about eternal life repeatedly. So what does all this have to do with where we're going? Well, it, there's this incredible link between that story in the Old Testament all the way in, back in the book of Exodus and the one that's taking place on Friday evening as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus go to retrieve the body of Jesus and take it down off the cross. And that's what I want us to see this incredible link between Old Testament and New Testament and the fulfillment of Scripture that's taking place. Because if you recall in chapter 31 of Exodus, it says when you go out on Friday to collect, you're going to collect twice as much. You have five days to collect. The sixth day you'll collect twice as much, but don't ever hoard it. In other words, never collect more than what you need. Don't get um, greedy and go out and collect more. Because guess what? I'm going to provide for you. It says, each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Every day they went out, they got exactly what they needed for their household. And they were never to have anything left over. Because that would have been a sign of a lack of faith. That, well, maybe God's not going to provide tomorrow. So I'm going to get more today. Here's the problem. Moses said, let no one leave any of it till the morning. In other words, don't hoard it. Don't keep it. Don't store it. Don't, don't lack faith and think that I got to have more for tomorrow because here's what's going to happen. They didn't listen to Moses. They collected more than they should have. They tried to hoard what they collected and it bred worms and it stank. It didn't last. It, it, it decayed. It became corrupted and they couldn't eat it. See, God was telling them that I will provide your need but protect my Sabbath. Do what I tell you to do. Obey my command. And I'll make sure you have enough bread to eat. I'll make sure you have twice as much on Friday so that on Saturday you will be fed and full and you don't have to violate my commands. See, that's the, the real significance of Friday. The Friday when Jesus took his last breath on the cross, the Friday when Jesus gave up his life See, back in Exodus, it says on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. They had everything they needed for the day ahead. There was no lack. But see, God had told them, 
Tomorrow, the Sabbath is a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil. In other words, whatever you collected double of yesterday, bake it, cook it, get it ready. All that is left lay over, lay aside to be kept until the morning. In other words, it will be there for you. I'll protect it. It will not rot. It will not decay. What you collect on Friday will be there for you on Saturday. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And guess what? It did not stink and there were no worms. If they did that any of the other five days, it decayed, it rotted, it developed worms. If they did it in obedience to God's command on Friday, then Saturday they had more than enough to eat. See, this is all about the provision of God. And that's why this story is so important to what we're reading about what's taking place this particular Friday when Jesus gives up his life and when he is buried. See, God is making provision. Once again, God is taking care of the needs of not just his people, but for people for generations to come and from all people groups on the, in the world. Jesus is going to provide through his death. He's going to provide rest. See, the whole reason Jesus came was to die, but his death, as we talked about last, last week, had a tremendous purpose. It accomplished great things. And this whole idea of the, the Sabbath and the resting on the Sabbath is not about a cessation from work. That's not the point. It's not stopping working. It's, it's not um, eliminating all work from your life. That's not the point. It's really about rest. And it's ultimately about reliance upon God. Six days out of the week, they could work. They were expected to work. They were to be stewards. They were to do the things that God had put them on the earth to do. But on that seventh day, they were to rest in and rely upon God for all their needs. And guess what? If they were obedient, if they did what they were supposed to do, if they worked on Friday, they got to rest on Saturday. Rest and rely on the Lord. And this, this Old Testament picture from Exodus lays over what we're looking at in the closing verses of chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. See, God was going to meet their needs, how? Through Jesus Christ, and ultimately give them the greatest thing they needed, which was rest. I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, 28. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and guess what? I will give you rest. To a certain degree, Jesus is the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's made that statement before. And He is the Sabbath in the sense that He is the means by which weary, burdened mankind can finally find rest, cessation, from work, cessation from trying to do things through their flesh, earn a right relationship with God through works. He's saying, no, 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 it's, it's me. So Friday, God is making preparation for what's going to take place in just a few days ahead. And it all revolves around the body of Jesus. Multiple times in these verses, John has referred to the body of Jesus. Because it all ties back to this death and burial of Jesus. Now, John doesn't tell us a whole lot about the burial, but we do know that he is buried. And all 
three of the synoptic gospels give us details about this event. Uh, I've put the last page in your notes. There's a kind of a harmony of the gospels uh, regarding the burial of Jesus. And it just shows you what the different uh, gospel writers say about this event. But it's important to understand how Exodus ties into this. It has everything to do with the burial of Jesus that we just read about. Jesus said these words, and they're, they're highly significant. He told his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, now catch this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here he is using an agricultural, a horticultural reference to these men who grew up in an agrarian society. And he says, man, unless a, a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, there will be no other grain. That has to happen for new life to begin. It's part of nature. It's the way it works. And, and this is exactly what's going on when we read about the burial of Jesus. But here's what's significant. Here's what's important that, that we need to see. Everything we read about in chapter 16 of Exodus and chapter 31 of Exodus, this idea that if you collect twice as much on Friday, you'll have more than enough for Saturday and it will not corrupt. It will not decay. Listen to Psalm 66.10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. This is a messianic passage talking about Jesus to come, that Jesus is going to die, but he will not be abandoned to the grave. And we'll talk about that more next week as we wrap up this entire series. Jesus will die. He will be put in a tomb, but he will not remain in the tomb and he will not undergo decay. His body will not see corruption. Remember, if, if, any day of the week they collected more than they should and they tried to keep it for the next day, it would rot and it would develop worms. When you put a body in the grave, it doesn't take long before that body begins to decay, to decay and to develop worms. But in this case, it's a promise from God that my servant, my Holy One will not go through that. In Acts, we read these words, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, that God raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption, no more to return to death and everything that death brings to the human body. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. See, this, is, this all ties together the Old and the New Testament. That picture of the Sabbath rest, the, the picture of God's provision and how God is providing through the life of Jesus he was going to go to the grave, but his body would not undergo corruption. It would not decay. It would not rot. He would die. And as we read just a few minutes ago, Jesus was dead. When the soldiers went to break the legs of the three men hanging on the cross, the only one who had, had died was Jesus. And one of the reasons we know Jesus didn't just swoon on the cross and he didn't just pass out and they buried, buried him alive is the fact that Roman soldiers knew the difference between a living man and a dead man. And they would not have taken the risk of letting him live. But they saw that he was dead and they did not break his bones, but they broke the legs of the two men on either side. Jesus was dead, but he wasn't going to stay dead. Because if a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... 
it produces life. This is all a setup for the resurrection. See, his death was going to result in life. His death would produce eternal life, new life, for all those who would put their faith and trust in him. If they would trust in God to provide, he would. Everything they need, the rest they long for, could be found if they would put their hope in Jesus Christ. Again, let's look back at Exodus chapter 16. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. I know that's graphic. I know that's a little, you know, harsh, but that's the picture that we're meant to see here. That Jesus Christ was placed in the ground like, like a grain of wheat to die in order that he might produce new life. That's the hope we have. That's, that's why we believe that we have eternal life because of what Jesus, the Holy One of God, accomplished on the cross for me and for you, all of us who are in Christ. And we looked at this earlier in John chapter 6 when we went through this gospel account in the first semester where, where Jesus referred to himself repeatedly as the bread of life. He is the means by which we live. And he said, your fathers, <clears throat> excuse me, ate the manna in the wilderness. But guess what? They died. They ate this bread. It came from heaven. It was miraculous. It showed up every morning. And then when the sun came out, whatever was not collected just evaporated. It melted is what the scriptures say. But it was still just bread. And it can only sustain physical life because those people ultimately all died. This is the bread, he says, though, that comes from heaven so that one may eat of it and what? Not die. Different kind of bread. And he's talking about himself. I am the bread of life. It wasn't the bread, the manna that came down from heaven. That can't create and sustain eternal life. But I can, he says. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of it, this bread, he will live forever forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's going to give up his body. We just read about it last week of him being crucified, being traumatized, his body being beaten black and blue and the blood gushing from the wounds on his body. He gave his life. He gave his flesh so that we might have life. That's the story of the crucifixion. And so once again, we go back to the closing verses of chapter 19 and we see that he's dead because he gets put in a tomb. And it says that it's a new tomb. He's laid there by this man named Joseph of Arimathea, who the other gospel writers tell us was a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a Pharisee. And Nicodemus, who we already met, Earlier in our study, who's also a Pharisee, these two men come and they take the body of Jesus and they place it in a tomb. We also know that that tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. He gave his tomb so that Jesus' body could have a resting place. And once again, this takes us back to that servant song in Isaiah chapter 53 that we looked at last week. This prophetic passage written hundreds of years earlier is being fulfilled at this moment. Listen to what it says. His life was cut short in midstream. 
He was struck down for the rebellion of my people, God says. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. The innocence of Jesus, the sinlessness of Jesus. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. That idea that he was buried like a criminal is, is that he was buried in secrecy. There was no uh, funeral procession. There was no memorial given. It was just get the body down, put it in the grave, seal it, and let's get this thing over with. Buried like a criminal, but put in a rich man's grave. Once again, Scripture being fulfilled. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Messianic promises made in the Old Testament. He's placed in this tomb, this borrowed tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. But what's exciting and the reason we celebrate Easter is that he didn't stay there. Right? He, he didn't die and get buried and the body is still there somewhere in some obscure cave in a garden outside the walls of Jerusalem. No, that tomb is empty. He didn't stay in the tomb. Why? Because his death was temporary. That's why it didn't undergo decay. That's why there were no worms in his body because he wasn't there for long. He wasn't intended to stay there for long. He was intended to rise again. And again, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 53. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, when he dies, he will have many descendants. Let's go back to the grain analogy. A grain of wheat is put in the ground, it dies, and it produces much fruit. That's exactly what happened with Jesus' death. He would have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Jesus Christ would rise from the dead, and he would ascend back on high to sit at the right hand of God the Father where he sits right now, interceding on our behalf. He's alive and well. Again, that's the story of Easter. That's the reason we believe that's the hope that we have, because if he is risen and alive, then we know he's someday coming back as he promised. So all of these Old Testament passages tie back together with what, what is happening in that scene in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John. It goes on in chapter 53 of Isaiah and says, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, by his death, by his suffering, he will be satisfied because he will have done the work of his father. And because of his experience, everything that he went through, all the pain, all the suffering, all the ridicule, all the mocking, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous for he will bear all their sins. Remember last week, one of the shuns we talked about is this idea of justification that we are justified, we are made right with God, and we are imputed the righteousness of Christ. That's what this passage talks about. Because of what Jesus Christ did, He made it possible for us to be counted righteousness, to have His righteousness imputed to our account, but, and our sins placed on Him. He bore our sins so that we might bear His righteousness. And that's what makes us right with God, justified with God. But I want to look at one last thing, and it's in verse 41, and I never noticed this before. And this is why, again, I love to study Scripture, because no matter how many times you read it, it's like the Holy Spirit reveals something new and fresh and alive. And usually it's very well-timed. It's, it's because of what you're going through or 
a particular phase of your life. And I want you to notice this. Look at verse 41. It says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Never saw this before in my life. Never noticed that there was a garden. Right there, right where he was crucified. I guess in the back of my mind that, you know, I had this idea that, you know, Golgotha, every picture I've ever seen of it, it's, it's, it's this stark and harsh looking place. And they took the body down and they took it away to this other place. But it's all taking place in the same general area, the same context. It says, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb. See, everything's been prepared. Everything's ready. Just so happened that that tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, but it's a garden. Now, why is that important? Everything in Scripture is important. Every word, every sentence, every phrase is ripe with meaning. And this image of the garden is critical, but we overlook it. I've overlooked it for 65 years. Never seen it, never noticed it, and have lived my life just fine without it. But I guarantee it has opened my eyes to something incredibly new. See, the Greek word describes a literal garden, a kipos, a garden. And it's the very same word that Jesus used when describing the kingdom of God. And I think that's significant. And, and we need to look at this. Here's what Jesus said. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? He's trying to describe it to his disciples. What's the kingdom of God like? And they had all kinds of weird conceptions of the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, to what shall I compare it? It's like he's, trying, he's reaching for some kind of analogy or metaphor. And he comes up with this. It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. I hope you're seeing this. And it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, there can't be any fruit. Unless a mustard seed is sown in the garden, it can't grow and become a tree where the birds of the air come and flock and find rest in its branches. See, Jesus is that seed. Jesus is the picture of the grain being planted in the garden so that fruit might be produced. And the truth is, I and you represent the kingdom of God. We, we are the fruit. We are the first fruits of what God has produced through this gift of His Son. See, Jesus' death was ultimately fruitful, not final, and that's so important for us to understand is that when I die, it's final. Now, I, I get to go to be with the Lord, but, but this life as I know it ends, and for my loved ones, the life that they've come to know ends. I just did a funeral last week, and, and a good dear friend of mine, and, and he died after a battle with Parkinson's disease, and his life as we know it is gone. It's over. Yes, he's with the Lord. But see, Jesus' life was not final. It was fruitful because he was placed in the ground so that he might produce life and multiply himself many times over. He wasn't a martyr. Martyrs die and they stay dead. And then their cause lives on. Jesus 
isn't a martyr. He's a multiplier. He's alive and well, and he is still multiplying countless millions of people who are coming to faith in Christ all over the world from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And I love what Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. He became just like you and I, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Sabbath rest. I will provide for you what you can't provide for yourself. I'm going to destroy the evil one. I'm going to bring a defeat to Satan and ultimately to death by dying in your place, satisfying the just demands of a holy God, imputing my righteousness to you so that you can stand before God as righteous in His eyes. That's what Jesus Christ did. And he's done it for millions upon millions of people. And he continues to do it for millions upon millions of people. And it all took place in a garden. Which reminds me of another garden that we've looked at before. And I want to go back to Genesis chapter 3 where it all began. Literally all began in a garden. Listen to what it says. This is after Adam and Eve had sinned. And God has to make a decision. It's not a knee-jerk decision. He's not surprised. He's, he's not coming up with plan B. This has been the plan all along. He had been fully prepared for the fall because he had already intended to send his son long before the foundations of the world had been laid and Adam and Eve had been created. But here's what he says. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, knowing how to decide what's right and wrong being their own self-determiners of righteousness and wickedness. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden. He basically kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He was removed from that idyllic scene of the garden so that he couldn't eat of the tree of life in his fallen state and live forever. And then it goes on and says, He drove out the man and the woman, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God kept Adam and Eve out of the garden from that point forward so that they couldn't eat of the tree of life and live in their sinful state, live eternally in their sinful state. See, Jesus, in that tomb... And just days later, with his resurrection, was going to restore access to the garden. In other words, access to God and eternal life. He was going to put things back to the way they had originally been in the garden, the original garden. And it would come about through his death. See, there's this incredible tie-in from the garden of Eden and the garden where Jesus was buried. The, the first garden is where death came into the world. That was the result of the sin as it brought death to mankind, and we've been dealing with it ever since. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, and ultimately eternal separation from God. But on the cross and in that tomb, in a different garden, a long, long time later, Jesus Christ would restore life. 
and hope and rest and peace in a tomb. And so when I think about the tomb and when we think about what we just read about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they did some things. They, they prepared. They, they went through the effort of getting the body of Jesus off the cross and buried before sundown, before the Sabbath started, because they knew they couldn't do it on the Sabbath. So they made preparations. They, they went through all the things they had to do. Joseph took away his body. We know that Nicodemus brought the spices, 75 pounds worth of spices. They together wrapped his body and anointed his body for burial. And then they placed it in this tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. But guess what? They have no expectations. They, they finished their preparations. They get his body ready. It says they placed it in the tomb and then that tomb was sealed. And then we know from the other gospel accounts that there were guards posted there. But those two men had no expectations of anything happening the next day or any day. They just simply buried Jesus. See, it says it was the day of preparation, Friday before the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was about to begin. And on the Sabbath, the next day, what did they do? They did what they always did. They rested. They rested according to the commandment of God. See, Nicodemus had done all that they could do. And I admire them for the effort they put into it. Both men took great risks. They were both Pharisees. And they knew that the other members of the Sanhedrin, if they find out about this, were likely going to not just ridicule them, but possibly put them to death or kick them out of the Sanhedrin and keep them from worshiping. This was a risky deal. But they had done everything they could do. And the, the women, we know from the other gospel accounts, they had prepared spices so that they could come and anoint the body of Jesus, but they were too late and they had to wait. They had to wait till Sunday because they couldn't work on the Sabbath. See, everybody did what they could do. The Sabbath demanded that they rest. But what they didn't know is that God had other plans in place. While they rested on the Sabbath and the body of Jesus rested in the tomb, God was working behind the scenes, preparing for something unbelievable. And it's what we're going to talk about next week. So here's your discussion questions for this week. And once again, I know that some of you aren't meeting with your normal groups and I'm hoping all of that's going to change in the summer when we get back together and I'm hoping we can get around our tables again and meet live and in person. But in the meantime, continue to find somebody to talk to about these things. Here's your first one. According to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, why was it so important for Jesus to die? Why did he have to die? And I hope after everything we've talked about and looked at, you've got an idea of how critical it was that that grain of wheat was placed in the ground and died so that there might be fruit, you and I. Secondly, what proof is there that Joseph, Nicodemus, and the women weren't really expecting Jesus to resurrect from the dead? As far as I can tell, there's nothing in any of the gospel accounts that led, leads us to believe that any of these people, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, expected anything to happen. And that's pretty significant. So as they rested on the Sabbath, on that Saturday, 
their minds were still filled with the sadness of the loss that they had seen and experienced the day before. And finally, the garden where Jesus was buried became a symbol of both death and life. Why is that so significant? See, that garden, any garden is supposed to be a place of new life, new birth. You know, even in spite of the freeze that we had just recently, things are beginning to bloom again. Bushes that we thought were dead are beginning to show new life. That's what it's all about. That's what a garden represents. But this particular garden was also a place of death. But it's also, as we'll see next week, going to be a place of tremendous excitement and new life for generations and generations of people to come. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage and for the opportunity you've given me to not only teach it, but to wrestle with it, study it, and for the things that you've shown me in it. Lord, thank you that you took what happened in the garden long, long ago and you've restored things back to the way they're supposed to be. Once death came into the world because of the sins of man, but because the righteousness of Jesus, new life has now entered into the world. And those of us who are in Christ, who are getting ready to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, Father, we can rejoice because these things are true. What John said, what he witnessed about, all that he said, saw and all that he witnessed, he told us about. And he says, and my testimony is true. It's real. It happened. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men. Bless their week. And, Father, prepare our hearts for the joy and the hope of Easter. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, and our coming King. Amen. We'll see you guys next week for the last lesson in this series. I look forward to it. See you then. Bye.